Matthew chapter 8, we're going to look at the healing of the centurion servant, an amazing section of scripture. Uh, we have a couple of loose ends to tie up from last uh, the last time we spoke about the healing of the leper. So we're going to finish the healing of the leper, just a little teeny bit, a couple pages. And then we're going to look at the uh, healing of the centurion, the centurion's amazing faith in the healing of his servant. So I'm going to read chapter 8 of Matthew up to verse 13. And when he had come down from the mountain, great multitudes followed him. And behold, a leper came and worshipped him, saying, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Then Jesus put out his hand and touched him, saying, I am willing, be cleansed. Immediately his leprosy was cleansed. And Jesus said to him, See that you tell no one, but go your way, show yourself to the priests, and offer the gift that Moses commanded as a testimony to them. Now when Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him, pleading with him, saying, Lord, my servant is lying at home paralyzed, dreadfully tormented. And Jesus said to him, I will come and heal him. The centurion asked and answered and said, Lord, I am not worthy that you should come under my roof, but only speak a word and my servant will be healed. For I am a man under authority, having soldiers under me, and I say to this one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard it, he marveled and said to those who followed, Assuredly, I say to you, I have not found such great faith, not even in Israel. And I say to you that many will come from the east and the west and sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the sons of the kingdom will be cast out into outer darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then Jesus said to the centurion, Go your way. And as you have believed, so it shall be done, so let it be done for you. And his servant was healed that same hour. Now, like I said, I have just a couple of things uh, to continue from the leper. And uh, we basically we're going to look at the orders Jesus gives to the leper after he's healed. Fourth, after the leper is healed, Jesus gives him two orders. The first is that he is to tell no one about the healing. Matthew 8, 4a, see that you tell no one. Mark 1:44. see that you say nothing to anyone. And then Luke 5.14, he charged him to tell no one. And it's, it's an imperative. It's very strong. The demand to keep such healings a secret is a prominent feature of Jesus' ministry. And there are no reasons given in this context as to why they are to keep silent. He does not want publicity for his miracles. Consequently, scholars have referred to a number of reasons for this imperative. And by the way, it's a negative error subjunctive. Do not tell a single person. Number one, Christ did not want his healing or sign ministry to overshadow his gospel ministry. The sign is not the chief thing, but points to the main thing. Jesus is the Savior of the world who speaks the gospel to Israel. This truth with regard to signs is proof by the way, that modern faith healers are totally total frauds. Why do, you, why do they do supposed miracles? Now, they're not really doing them, but why do they pretend to do them? To point to themselves and their ministries and to make a lot of cash, to make a lot of money. They do it to exalt themselves. They don't, you don't hear these guys preaching great gospel sermons. They don't talk about the gospel at all. It's all for self-exaltation and money. So it proves that they're frauds. They do not exalt the true gospel, but themselves and their supposed abilities and their little empires. Number two, that's one reason. <clears throat> the publication of the Savior's 
amazing miracles would bring such large crowds that our Lord's ability to teach in towns and villages would be greatly hindered. He'd be like a rock star. He'd be like the Beatles in 1964 where the crowds are just... He couldn't even move about towns and villages. And this reason is implied to a degree in Mark's account. 145, however, he went out and began to proclaim it freely and to spread the matter. So that Jesus could no longer openly enter the city, but was outside in deserted places, and they came to him from every direction. Great popularity comes with certain problems. In his state of humiliation, Christ was focused on his ministry of spiritual and eternal salvation. And the masses, unfortunately, were often focused solely on material needs. And obviously, in a day when medicine is extremely primitive and there are, there are not cures for things like leprosy, there are not cures for all sorts of things, uh, a, a, somebody who was doing real mighty miracles would be very popular. And then number three. Our Lord knew that the, man, the masses would misinterpret his sign gifts and connect his power to their idea of a conquering earthly messiah who would rule over Israel as an earthly king and conquer the armies of Rome. While the first two arguments obviously apply, the secondary one is more speculative, yet may be part of the reason. After he, remember, after he created the fishes, he, he uh, multiplied the fish and the bread so that this huge crowd of, uh, at one instance it was 3,000, another instance it was, I forget, 7,000 or 12,000, and they wanted to make him king right at that moment. They were ready to put the crown on his head, and he slipped away, because that's not why he came. And then four. In the only passage that specifically explains the command not to publicize his amazing miracles, the emphasis is on his meekness and the purpose of his ministry. In Matthew 12, 13 to 21, we read this. Jesus is going to quote Isaiah. And he said to the man, stretch out your hand, and he stretched it out, and it was restored as whole as the other. And the Pharisees went out and plotted against him how they might destroy him. But when Jesus knew it, he withdrew from there, and a great multitude followed him, and he healed them all. Yet he warned them not to make him known, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, Behold my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved in whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him, and he will declare justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel nor cry out, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, a smoking flax he will not quench till he sends forth justice to victory. And in his name, Gentiles will trust. So Jesus in his estate, his state of humiliation, sought to avoid conflict with the civil and religious authorities, of course, until the proper time came, so that he would not be arrested and tried too soon. Now, as he gets right before the crucifixion, he deliberately... <laughs> The conflict rises, let's say. you know. <clears throat> His method was to shun publicity, to withdraw when necessary, and to avoid agitation. When cornered by questions from the scribes and Pharisees, he often answered by clever questions and always carefully upheld the law of Moses. So our Lord did not seek to exalt himself by seeking debate and conflict with the authorities. In his earthly ministry, the might or power of miracles was used to support the gospel, not 
to crush his opponents. Now, toward the end, obviously, there is this elevation of conflict. And Jesus, uh, Matthew 23, for example, and then Matthew 24. Uh, but that's right before the crucifixion. His use of power against the enemies of the gospel and kingdom would come after his resurrection and exaltation, as he himself promised at his trial. Jesus said to him, It is as you said. Okay, are you the Christ, the Son of the living God? Yes, it is true. I am. It is as you say. Yes, I am. Nevertheless, I say to you, hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Matthew 26, 64. Coming on the clouds of heaven is judgment language, meaning I'm going to come and I'm going to judge this nation. I'm going to judge you. And sitting at the right hand of power, he's equating himself with God. Our Lord's meekness, desire to avoid mis a misunderstood, unorthodox concept of carnal glory, and his avoiding a premature antagonism, proved him to be the true Messiah of the prophets, a savior king that the despised Gentiles would trust, embrace, and serve. So we can see that the reasons for Christ's command not to tell others is based on a combination of reasons that are interrelated. So it's very interesting, this theme. Don't tell anybody. And of course, nobody, they don't, no, nobody obeys him. If you can imagine being a leper where your body's half eaten away and you're on your death's doorstep and all of a sudden you're as good as new, it'd be hard uh, not to speak of it. The second command regards his need to obey the law of Moses as recorded in Leviticus 14. He is to show himself to a priest so the priest can carefully examine him. Leviticus 14, 2-3. He's to make certain offerings and then proclaim him... Uh, the priest will proclaim him clean so that he can be fully restored to fellowship. It was probably during this man's examination that the priest asked questions about how his disease was cured. And the man first acknowledged that Jesus had healed his advanced state of leprosy. This man had an advanced state, the kind that, you know, ate your fingers and your toes. The priestly examination would serve as a witness regarding Christ's healing power and our Lord's respect for the Mosaic law. And remember, the, the Mosaic regulations were not set out of gear. They were not abrogated until Christ actually died and rose from the dead. The New Testament begins with the resurrection. It doesn't begin before the death of Christ. Consequently, our Lord upheld every jot and tittle of the law. The healed man's obedience to the Mosaic law would serve as a testimony to the priests and the people that Jesus was faithful to the Torah. The high priests and religious leaders later, accusations against Christ being against Moses were false, and they knew that they were false. The only laws that our Lord and his disciples refused to obey were laws based solely on human autonomy, human imagination, or church traditions. Why, why don't you and your disciples wash your hands as the scribes and the priests command? You know, why, why aren't you doing that? Why aren't you doing in that ritual washing of the hands? We don't follow human traditions. Jesus was an anti-Romanist. Jesus was an anti-traditionalist. Anything that was not based directly on the word of God, he refused to obey. If they were singing uninspired hymns back then, Jesus wouldn't have sang them. 
Jesus wouldn't, this idea that if a synod makes a decision and the decision is not based on the Bible, that we have to obey that decision, that's complete nonsense. Jesus wouldn't obey any of that stuff. If it's not based on the word of God, don't cooperate with it, don't obey it at all, period. Since such laws were not based on Scripture, and indeed were human additions to Scripture, Jesus had to disobey them in order to obey the many passages which forbid adding or detracting from God's law word, Deuteronomy 4, 2, 12, 32, etc. There's about 20 passages I could reference. We're not to add to God's word. We're not to detract from God's word. So we can't cooperate with human traditions. We cannot cooperate with human additions to Scripture. We have to disobey them. Even if they're accepted by 95% of Christendom, modern Christendom, we have to say, no, we're not going to do that. It has no basis in Scripture. And to do it would be sinful, especially when you know it's not commanded in the Word of God. That'd be exceptionally sinful. And then we come to the healing of a centurion servant. Now, in Jesus' answer, Capernaum, a centurion came to him, pleading with him, saying, Lord, my servant is lying at home paralyzed, dreadfully tormented. And Jesus said to him, I will come and heal him. The centurion answered and said, Lord, I am not worthy that you should come under my roof, but only speak a word and my servant will be healed. For I am also a man under authority, having soldiers under me. And I say to this one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard it, he marveled and said to those who followed, Assuredly, I say to you, I have not yet found such great faith, not even in Israel. And I say to you that many will come from the east and west and will sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the sons of the kingdom will be cast out into outer darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then Jesus said to the centurion, Go your way, and as you have believed, let it, so let it be done to you, for you. And his servant was healed that very hour. <clears throat> now as we consider our Lord's second miracle... We benefit by noting some of the difference between this miracle and the healing of the leper. Now, we noted a few weeks back when we discussed our first sermon on the miracles that Matthew organizes the miracles topically as where Luke is, is more uh, following the order of history, as where Matthew's doing it in a theological way. <clears throat> and he wants us to compare the miracles to the Jew first and then the Gentile. Matthew has organized these stories in a manner that will emphasize how a prominent Gentile from an occupation, army no less, regards and approaches the Jewish Messiah. <clears throat> so in our Lord's first miracle, he healed an unclean Jewish outcast by a touch. In the second great sign, he heals the servant boy of a Gentile centurion at a distance, simply by speaking a word. The leper is able to come to Jesus, but the paralyzed servant was not. He needed his master to come and intercede on his behalf. In the healing of the leper, there was no accompanying teaching or lessons other than a command to be silent and the requirement of obeying the law of Moses. The healing of the centurion servant is accompanied with great praise for the centurion's faith. And that's the great focus of this pericope. Greater than everyone in Israel. And a careful statement about the peoples outside of Israel's coming to faith and being included in the household of God. Verse 11. That is, they will be regarded as true spiritual brothers with the patriarchs. There is also a prophetic statement in verse 12 about the coming judgment upon Israel for their unbelief. So let us look at some other introductory considerations, and then we'll look at 
look at the, uh, the amazing faith of this centurion first. This is the only miracle account that is found. Uh, this is the only miracle account that is found in Luke 7, 1 to 10, but not in Mark. And Luke's account gives certain details that are not found in Matthew. Number one, according to Luke, the centurion did not come to Jesus in person, but sent his plea through Jewish elders. This indicates that he regarded that he was respected among the local Jewish community and was almost certainly a proselyte to the Jewish faith. This use of local prominent Jews indicates the centurion's great sense of unworthiness, as we're going to see. As a Gentile, he believed that his position would be taken better considered coming from the lips of respected Jews. Number two, the Jewish elders beg Jesus and note the centurion's love of the covenant nation and good works for the local community. He had personally paid to have a synagogue built in Capernaum. And in the Greek, it's, it's like really emphatic. It, it, you know, it, he paid for the whole thing out of his own pocket, a synagogue. So he obviously was a wealthy man. <clears throat> we learn that he was not only exceptionally powerful, but also very wealthy. Moreover, he already had faith in the Old Testament scriptures and a piety that reflects that faith. Number three, the second communication to our Lord comes from the centurion's friends, first the Jewish elders, then the friends, his friends, as Jesus and the elders are on their way to the centurion's house. Now, Matthew's omissions are not contradictions, but only abbreviations. Matthew's focus is on the gospel's, the Gentiles' great faith in contrast to the Jewish nation's unbelief. Luke also focuses on his great faith, but notes his previous piety as a Gentile God-fearer. Remember, Luke's writing to a primarily Gentile audience. Matthew's writing to a primarily Jewish audience. So they have different emphasis. Many of the first Gentile converts to Jesus came from the proselytes in the synagogues. We see that in the book of Acts. What Jesus says in Matthew's account prepares us for his confrontation with the Jewish leaders in chapters 21 to 23 and previews his discourse concerning the judgment of apostate Israel in chapters 23 to 25. It anticipates his command of the apostles to disciple all nations in 28.19. This fits perfectly with his generous welcome by the Gentile Magi in 2.1-11, while the Jewish leaders were indifferent or hostile. Herod wants to kill him, and nobody wants to go... Imagine if you learn the Messiah is here, and you completely don't even bother to go see him. And that's, that was the situation in Israel. Second, Matthew's account has five main elements. Number one, the centurion's request, five, verses 5 to 6. Two, Christ's response, verse 7. Number three, the centurion's request to heal his servant at a distance with reasons, verses 8 to 9. And then four, the response of our Lord to this, this great faith and the lesson to be learned from it, verses 10 to 11. And then, of course, the healing itself, verse 13, number 5. Third, this account is only one of two healings at a distance in the Gospels, simply by a spoken word. The other healing is found in Matthew. I forgot to write down the reference. It revolves the, uh, the Gentile woman, the one who talks about crumbs from the dog under the table. I forgot to write it down. <clears throat> she begs for help for someone sick at home. It appears that Gentiles living in Jewish communities assumed 
that the Jews would not want to enter a Gentile home, which was regarded as ritually unclean. While this would not have been a barrier to Jesus, he didn't care. Nevertheless, he regarded their faith and healed at a distance as they required. And we'll see, uh, you know, the situation in the book of Acts when there's another centurion and God wants Peter to preach in his house to a group of Gentiles. And to get Peter to go, God, God has a vision, but has to tell him by direct revelation, you're going to that house and you're preaching in that house, don't regard them as unclean anymore. And then fourth, before we look at the centurion's request, we would do well to consider the setting and the people involved. The incident takes place right after Jesus returns to Capernaum. In 4.13, we are told that after leaving Nazareth, our Lord lived in Capernaum, which is by the sea in the regions of Zebulun and Naphtali. Matthew goes on to inform us that Christ's ministry in this area fulfills a prophecy in Isaiah. Now, Capernaum means simply village of Nahum. That's all it means, Capernaum, village of Nahum. It was a, a very a, a pretty large city on the northwest coast of the city of Galilee, the Sea of Galilee. The city was of considerable importance in the days of Jesus. It was there that Matthew sat at his tax office and was called by the Savior in Matthew nine nine. The city contained the home of a high ranking government official, John four forty six, which explains the presence of the Roman centurion with his detachment of soldiers. Okay, centurions, as you know from the name, ruled over a hundred soldiers, which is a, a, a pretty solid contingent, they're armed to the teeth for that city. And he had the responsibility of keeping the peace on behalf of Rome and protecting Roman interests and officials. The centurion lived in the city long enough to become a proselyte and provide the funds to build a synagogue. He was under the authority of Herod Antipas, and we know from other sources that that's where he was paid from. He was paid from the uh, Herod Antipas and was well paid. He had heard about Jesus' healing power, and he wanted him to heal his servant. Now, Jesus shows the city as his headquarters because of its size and location. Many of his disciples, of course, as we know, were fishermen from near that area, and uh, it would be easy for them, as we see later in the Gospels, to go out and fish and make a little extra cash and to have a little extra food <clears throat> near that general area. Tragically, our Lord will condemn Capernaum to hell for its unbelief in the midst of his amazing miracles in Matthew eleven twenty three. Woe to you, Capernaum! If the miracles that had been done in you had been done in Sodom and Gomorrah, they'd still be here today. I'm just paraphrasing, but you know the gist of it. The centurion interceded on behalf of his servant. The word used in Matthew is uh, P-A-I-S. I don't know how to say it. Pace, which can mean child as well as servant. Consequently, some scholars believe that this was the uh, son of the uh, centurion. But the parallel passage in Luke 7, 7 indicates that he was a doulos, doula, that is a slave or servant. And you would never call your son a slave <laughs> or a servant. You'd never call your son, your actual son, a, a doulos. The one who is sick is either a young house servant or a young soldier who serves as a personal aid to the centurion. Given the use of pace, it is probably the former. The centurion probably had a very young house servant who may have been an orphan. Consequently, he became like a father to the slave and was very concerned for his welfare. They're very tight. You can tell he loves them. He really cares about them. The servant is described as paralyzed, dreadfully tormented, verse 6. He could not move. 
He was experiencing great suffering. The centurion was wealthy, and we can assume that hired doctors could do nothing to help the servant. His condition from a human standpoint was incurable. And there are many diseases where it's a progressive thing where uh, eventually your whole body becomes paralyzed and you're bedridden, and then eventually you can't even breathe and you die. Well, let's look at the centurion's request and his humility. As we examine the centurion's request of Jesus, there are a number of things to consider regarding it. And the mindset, it's important to look at his mindset of how he... Uh, <coughs> of how he asked uh, Jesus that are noteworthy. First, the request was based purely on the boy's need and Jesus' power, compassion, and mercy. Listen to this, verse 6. Lord, my servant is lying at home paralyzed, dreadfully tormented. First, we note the centurion's faith and how he addressed Christ. He says, Lord. He called him Lord. The military leader, who is rich and powerful who is used to giving orders, addresses Jesus as the sovereign Lord over all authorities. Now, we know that the word Lord here is not simply a formal greeting like Sir. Sometimes in context, it, it doesn't mean much. It just means, you know, it's an official above you and you call him Lord, which is the equivalent of Sir, but not here. We know from verses 8 and 9 where the centurion assumes that the Savior has power over the very elements of creation. Everyone who comes to Jesus with prayers must first believe that he is Lord. He is both God and man in one person. His human nature, or his theanthropic person, was exalted above all at the resurrection. But even in a state of humiliation, because he was God, he was Lord. And he could command the wind and the sea. He could command the very elements. That's his power. The centurion appeals to Jesus' love and compassionate nature by describing the condition of his young slave. And it's interesting, the plea is more of a simple uh, description than it is a request. His assumption is, if I just tell him what bad shape he's in, Jesus will have compassion. He understood that Jesus was compassionate and merciful and thus appealed to his loving heart. My boy has a severe paralysis. He is bedridden. He cannot move. He's suffering terribly. All this implies, Lord, have mercy on him. Show him your love and compassion. I know that you are a loving, merciful Savior. I have faith in your attributes of love, grace, mercy, and compassion. I know that you will save my servant. His faith is directed to Christ as he really was, as he really is. He's defining Christ, he's defining Jesus as the scriptures define him. Beloved, We must not only believe in Jesus' divinity and infinite power to save, we must also trust in his loving, compassionate, merciful character. He has the power to save, and he is willing to save those who do not deserve to be saved. Power without love and mercy does not help. Love and mercy without power cannot help. Jesus has both, and the centurion knew it, and thus turned to Christ by faith as the perfect Savior. And then second, we need to look at how the centurion's sense of unworthiness directed his faith to Jesus as the perfect, all-sufficient Savior. This is an extremely important lesson. People who think they're not sinners, who think that everything's fine with their soul, they don't come to Jesus. They think they don't need to. Now, I remember when I uh, was first in Wisconsin, I preached, somebody had a visiting parent who was an unbeliever, 
asked me to preach a salvation sermon. I did. And his response was, I'm not a sinner. I mean, he was serious. I'm not a sinner. Now, we knew the guy. We knew that he cursed and we knew that he sinned all the time. But to him, he was not a sinner because he defined sin in a different way than the Bible defines sin. And this is best demonstrated by noting the difference between the way the centurion spoke to Jesus in contrast to the, to the Jewish elders uh, who served as his intermediaries. When the Jewish elders came to Jesus to relay the, sovereign, uh, the centurion's message, their theology of merit or works was mingled with their plea. Listen to what they say. The one for whom he should do this was deserving. For he loves our nation, and he has built us a synagogue. That's Luke 7, 4-5. In other words, Lord, he deserves a miracle. He deserves your love. He deserves a miracle from you. Do you ever notice that? That's how, the, that's how the Jews talk. These are the Jewish leaders. If anyone deserves your salvation, this centurion does. Look how good he is. Look at how great and wonderful his works are. Now, there's a certain truth to the, to the teaching that God listens to the prayers of the righteous. That's taught in Scripture. James talks about that, for example. But this relates purely to sanctification and the blessings of covenant faithfulness, not merit, or getting what one deserves. For all of our works are tainted with sin. Luke 17.10. Galatians chapter 3. We don't get what we deserve. It's a matter of grace. It's a matter of God giving us something we don't deserve. Deserving has nothing to do with salvation. Our plea is, God be merciful to me, an undeserving guilty sinner. The centurion, however, has a completely different attitude. When he finds out that Jesus is coming to his house to heal a servant, he sends his friends with this message. Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy that you should enter under my roof. The humility that recognizes our sin, guilt, and unworthiness is an excellent evidence of regeneration and a work of the Holy Spirit on the heart. The man who depends on his own good works, his own goodness, supposed goodness, to, to that man who depends on his own good works, the centurion's confession of unworthiness is perplexing. He loved the people of God. He went far above a normal tithe to support the cause of the covenant people. He exhibited love and compassion to his young servant. Yet, he regarded all of his works as nothing but filthy rags and looked solely to Christ for salvation. I am unworthy! It is a tragic fact of history that high thoughts of self go with an unbiblical low view of Christ. That's just true. That's true of Romanism. That's true of Judaism. It's true of Islam. This is certainly true of Romanism, which teaches that faith in Jesus alone cannot save unless our good works are added to faith. This is why they supposedly re-sacrifice Jesus during the Mass week after week. They teach that Christ, what Christ did on the cross is insufficient. And they reject our unworthiness and thus attempt to cover uh, the brightness of our Lord's infinite grace with our sin-stained rags. But, and our Savior spoke to this issue very clearly in Luke 18, 9-14. Listen, Listen carefully. Also, he spoke this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. 
The Pharisee stood and prayed, thus with himself, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as a tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. And the tax collector, standing afar off, would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. In order to have a true sense of self and our own worthiness, we must first have a proper understanding of the true requirements of God's moral law as it applies to our thoughts, words, and actions. You know, it applies even to your thinking. It applies to how you think. It applies to your lust. We are by nature polluted by sin, depraved, guilty, degraded, unable to please God. When we think of how bad we really are, how unable we are to keep God's law internally, then our humility and consciousness of sin and guilt will blossom. Spiritual humility is good and healthy, for it leads us to look away from ourselves and depend solely upon Christ. And that's the way this wonderful centurion thought. Listen to carefully in Paul's words in one of the classic passages, Philippians 3, 3-9. For we are the circumcision who worship God in the Spirit. Rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. Though I might ask confidence, I also might have confidence in the flesh. If anyone thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I more so circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, concerning the law, a Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. But what things were gained to me, these I counted lost for Christ. Yet indeed, I also count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Jesus Christ my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith. That is why Romanism, that is why the federal vision, that is why all the cults, that is why Unitarianism, that is why Judaism, that is why Islam are all satanic to the core. Because they say that Christ is insufficient and we have to add to what he's done. Beware of the pride of unbelief. The humanist mocks Jesus and the gospel because of a love of self and a commitment to self-sufficiency. The humanist manifesto says, and I'm, I'm paraphrasing, I didn't take time to look it up, we do not need a savior, we can save ourselves. That's almost a quote. We do not need a savior, that's directed against Christianity, we do not need a savior, we can save ourselves. They've done a fine job of it, haven't they? God leaves such fools to destroy themselves by their own foolish devices. The cultist and the syncretist thinks of Jesus only as a lifeboat or an aid to salvation. He gets the ball rolling. Then we must do the rest. But all such thinking contradicts the centurions. I am not worthy. I am not worthy. And then third, Jesus points us to the greatness of the centurion's faith. The centurion understood and trusted in Christ's power to heal and save. He explained to our Lord the reason why it was unnecessary for Christ to come into his house by an analogy regarding authority. The centurion was a representative of Rome and Caesar. When he gave orders, those under him had to obey. 
if those under uh, under me must obey my civil limited authority and power, then Jesus of Nazareth, who exercises the infinite authority and unlimited power of God, who created and controlled the very universe itself, can command and carry out anything that he wills. <clears throat> he can order deadly diseases to cease at once and be replaced by complete and perfect health. He understood that Jesus did not heal like a, simply like a prophet, like Elijah. But that authority resided in his own being. A military man recognizes authority, and he could see in Jesus' power ultimate authority. Ultimate authority. Faith recognizes Christ's power to save. Such faith was rare. The unbelieving Pharisees refused to believe in Jesus' power, and they attributed his miracles to demons. And if you read the Jewish Talmud, it says that, they, you know, uh, talks about in the Bible how Jesus had to flee to uh, Egypt when he was a young lad. And they teach in the Talmud that Jesus learned sorcery and magic in Egypt and brought it back, and that's how he fooled the people. That's what they believe. It's satanic to the core. Consequently, they mocked him, saying, Show us a sign from heaven! They were unregenerate enemies of our Lord who refused to believe the obvious. No wonder that Christ marveled at the centurion's faith and said, Assuredly, I say to you, I have not found such great faith, not even in Israel. Matthew 8.10 Israel, who possessed the word of God and were the visible church for several generations, who God had delivered from Egypt and given the promised land, should have promptly and sincerely embraced Jesus by faith. But here we see that a Gentile soldier had a faith stronger even than believing Jews. I mean, you look at the apostles until after the resurrection, before the resurrection, the apostles. Yes, they had faith, but they had a weak faith. They were pretty weak. And then fourth, one obvious lesson in this text is our Lord's willingness and eagerness to save Gentiles who possess faith. And remember, Matthew is written primarily to a Jewish audience. Although Matthew is written primarily to a Jewish audience, and perhaps even because of this emphasis, there is an emphasis on the inclusion of the Gentiles into the family of God. Jesus pictures believing Gentiles reclined at a table, loaded with food and drink, enjoying covenant fellowship with the great patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. All the promises of the covenant of grace given to the fathers of the Jewish people and nation belong to the Gentiles who believe in Jesus. Now keep in mind, this was spoken by our Lord at a time when Jews were not even allowed to enter the house of Gentiles due to fears of ritual uncleanness. They wouldn't even go into a Jewish house. and I think the centurion understood that. Remember, Peter would not even go in, into a Gentile's house. Another centurion without first receiving a vision of special revelation, ordering him to do so. And the vision appears three times. Peter was one stubborn guy. After the gospel is preached to a Gentile audience, they believe and are baptized with the Holy Spirit, we are explicitly told. Oh, I forgot to write the reference down. I think it's chapter 11. Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance leading to life. It was always God's plan. It was always God's plan. Dispensationalism is whacked. As Jesus was willing to touch a leper and enter the house of a Gentile, in charge of occupation forces, the kingdom of God is about to become multinational and universal throughout planet Earth. 
The middle wall of separation is about to come crashing down. For one only needs to believe in Jesus and follow him to be a Christian. The old order of first becoming a Jew and submitting to circumcision is passing away. There were Gentiles who entered the faith in the Old Testament, but they had to become circumcised and they were supposed to move to Israel and literally become a Jew. There were a bunch of Gentiles who left Egypt who became part of Israel. You had to become a Jew. The visible church was national Israel. That was the visible church. It was associated with a nation. Paul will develop this thought in Romans and Galatians, noting that all who believe in Christ are now children of Abraham. Those who refuse to believe are only children of Abraham according to the flesh, Paul says. Paul was not a sacramentalist. Paul did not believe in the federal vision at all. He rejected it. Christ emphasizes the importance of faith by noting the fate of the Jews who do not believe and thus reject him. Matthew 8, 12, But the sons of the kingdom will be cast into outer darkness. They'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The Jews who were covenant children, at least externally, who possessed all the privileges of the visible church, the sacraments, the word of God, the blood sacrifices, the true worship of the only true and living God in, in Jerusalem, will be cast away from God's presence <clears throat> and placed in the outer darkness. They will not be at the marriage supper of the Lamb, for they will be cast into hell because of their unbelief and opposition to the truth. Now that was an exceptionally radical statement. He didn't say this privately to his disciples. There were people there. The Jews believed that they would be at the banquet table with the patriarchs and that all the Gentiles would be excluded into the outer darkness. That's what they believed at that time. They placed their faith in their blood, their heritage, as well as the sacrament of circumcision. But Jesus teaches that faith or belief in him is revealed in the scriptures, is the great deciding factor. It is the great divider of men. What, ye, what do you think of Jesus? Whose son is he? Do you believe he's the Son of God? Do you believe he's the only true Messiah? Do you believe he's Lord of all lords and King over all kings? Do you believe he died on the cross for your sins and rose again for your justification? Genuine fellowship with the true God of Israel can only take place through faith in the person and work of Christ. Only true believers or real Christians will sit at the Messianic banquet table. Now, interestingly, I'll be very brief on this, our Lord's imagery of the Feast of God comes from the Old Testament. It comes from Isaiah 25, 6 to 8. Listen carefully. And in this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all people, all people, not just the Jews, a feast of choice pieces, a feast of, uh, wine, uh, of wines on the knees. In other words, you're not only going to have good wine, you're going to have a choice of different kinds of good wine. Of fat things full of marrow, of well-refined wines on the lees, and he will destroy on this mountain the surface of the covering cast over all people and the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. The rebuke of his people he will take away from all the earth for the Lord has spoken. That's what Jesus is alluding to. And if the Jews knew their Bibles and believed their Bibles, they wouldn't have had any problem with Jesus' teaching. But they didn't like it. They were a bunch of racists. They viewed 
uh, covenant membership as a racial thing instead of a, a matter of faith. Yes, the Jews, if you were born into a Jewish household and you were circumcised, yes, you had certain covenant privileges. But if you don't have faith, all that's worthless. It's just going to damn you even more. Jesus was not teaching anything new, but was faithfully using the Old Testament that the Jewish religious and civil leaders had twisted and had perverted. The judgment of those who had great privileges, yet rejected their Messiah, is severe yet deserved. The tears of hell are the result of inconsolable, never-ending wretchedness, coupled with total everlasting hopelessness. The gnashing of teeth describes excruciating pain, coupled with severe anger and hatred of God. You have to understand, when, when we think of hell, it's not as though somebody, oh, gee, I really, I'm really sorry what I did. I, I see that I should have believed in Jesus. No. They still, they're not going to love Jesus in hell. They're still going to hate God. They're still going to hate Jesus, and they're still going to hate the people of God. <laughs> Hell's like a prison, you know, a really bad prison. In somebody, in place, a place like Brazil, where they're cutting each other's throat, and they're <laughs> covered with tattoos. Hell's a terrible place. The doctrine of hell is a controversial and unpleasant topic. Yet Jesus spoke of it more than all the prophets combined. The Son of God warns you that if you do not believe, then you will go to hell at death, and body and soul will be cast into the lake of fire at the second coming of Christ. This is important stuff. This is the most important stuff. Don't take it for granted. Don't be worldly and complacent. We must take this warning against unbelief seriously. We must keep our faith focused on Christ and on him alone. That's our only hope. You know that Jesus is true. You know that he, he is God. You know that he really does save and he can save. So don't lack faith. There's no reason to lack faith. And then fifth, Christ heals the paralyzed servant at the very moment, that very moment. Matthew 8, 13. Then Jesus said to the centurion, Go your way as you have believed, so let it be done for you. And his servant was healed that very same hour. The miracle performed from a distance by a word from our Savior proved that the centurion's faith was justified. Remember, remember our introductory sermon on miracles. It's a sign. Everything the centurion believed about Christ was true. And therefore, we have to have that faith. We need to believe in that Christ. Faith in Christ is never irrational. It's never unjustified. Now, I've gone on YouTube, and I've, Bert, there's a, thing, a lecture by Bertrand Russell, again, why he's not a Christian, and there's all these super famous popular atheists on there giving their reasons why they're atheists and they don't believe in Christ. And uh, I'm telling you, a 10-year-old educated Christian could refute these guys in five minutes. It's all foolishness. It's all based on assumptions of atheism. It's all based on assumptions of secular humanism or atheistic naturalism. It's not based on reality. It's not based on what the scriptures actually teach. They're totally ignorant of the scriptures. They're complete and utter fools. Faith in Christ is rational, and it's the only rational position. And if you don't believe in Christ, you're doomed. So I say, don't take this for granted. Don't take the gospel for granted. The miracles point us to the truth of the gospel. Don't ever forget that. Let us pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you for your dear son, Jesus. We thank you for his amazing power. We thank you for his saving power. He really does save. 
He doesn't make salvation possible. He actually saves us. He actually saves us from our own stupidity and blindness and sin and guilt. So we thank you for that salvation, Lord. We ask that you would fill us with the Holy Spirit, bend our hearts, cause us to walk faithfully according to your gospel, according to your holy word, that we would be faithful servants of your Son and not do anything to hinder our relationship, not do anything against what he has taught us. Help us, Lord, to be holy. In Jesus' name, amen.